This is a conversation that changed how I think about American policing. I sat down with two current NYPD officers who kept it really real. You are being told, go arrest a bunch of young black men. Yes, we are. We're not here to arrest white kids and ruin their futures. We knew that, but you don't usually hear officers say it. That's the kind of candor I got from officers Edwin Raymond and Derek Waller, who are part of a 12-officer lawsuit against the NYPD, alleging that officers are given quotas, the number of people they have to arrest and give summonses to for each month. If they don't meet their number, as cops say, they're punished. And with cops pressured to be harsh on black suspects and lenient toward white ones, we have a system where officers are incentivized to arrest black youths for anything. It's not about bad apples. It's about a policing system that sends officers chasing after black people. I understood all that before, but I had not heard it quite laid out in that way by people inside policing. I didn't know that the department would prefer that officers make arrests versus stopping crime. Departments only care about the quantity of arrests, not the quality of them. I didn't know that, and this blew my mind, that officers know that the police are not here to protect and serve. They're here to generate revenue for the city or the state or the department. Most people learned about for-profit policing from Ferguson, Missouri, where we saw that the city was funding a significant part of its budget via parking tickets and traffic tickets and fines being assessed aggressively. This is a legacy of decades of taxes lowering while citizens continue to demand all the same civic services. So cities use police to make up the shortfall, blanketing citizens with all sorts of tickets to raise money. Quite often, clawing money from citizens in ways that are totally unfair. You know what I'm talking about. It's probably happened to you. If you think this only happens in small cities, no, Officer Raymond tells me New York City is doing this on a far bigger scale than Ferguson. After I had this conversation, I looked at policing differently. I think it'll influence your thoughts on policing too. And if you want to know more about Edwin Raymond and this lawsuit against the city, Watch the documentary Crime and Punishment, which follows him and the other officers in the suit and sees how their lives have been changed by it. This is a special episode of Torre Show with two NYPD officers, Edwin Raymond. Officers need their discretion back, and cops that have broken windows is taking that away. And Derek Waller. Guys, if you stop for spitting, no, 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 really, it sounds crazy, doesn't it? But spitting. Taking us inside the NYPD. Early policing in America was slave patrols. How is that legacy, that root, impacting modern policing? Um, you know, from day one, the, the relationship between um, enforcement and the black community has always been a gotta get you relationship, and it hasn't changed. Um, one of the things you hear politicians and even police officials uh, who kind of advocate for police reform say is we need to bridge, we need to, we need to bring back community. And, and, and cops and, 
And I always think, when we're community, black, the black community and cops ever in, right. on one page, it's never. we're literally doing something that's trying to accomplish something that's never existed. We're not trying to bring something back to how it was. You know, you, I've heard the mayor say it, uh, the commission. I've heard so many people say we got to bring community, uh, community and police relations back to, together. It, it was never together. But even from a training perspective, they are taught arrest, yeah. right? Not de-escalate, not no. consider the situation. Well, you see, cops on the field one-on-one, -on -one, they could probably teach those things, but overall, that's not really focused on. You know, from day one, when a police officer leaves the academy, it's numbers, you know. it's There's been slight changes recently. I, I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be lying if I said I, I didn't. Let me jump in. You know. Um, we're, all, we're, we're all, as police officers, we're, we're given a tax number. It's like it's like your social security number, and no matter what you get promoted to on this job, that tax he might be sergeant, lieutenant, inspector, chief, whatever. But he's gonna still have the same tax number, and each tax number within we we we're basically we're basically revenue. I mean, we we bring in money for the city. So when each each summers we write everybody, it's it's all money for the city. It's revenue. So basically, when you when you stop doing that, they come after you. So that's the bottom line. It goes back to what he said. It goes back to Comstat. So the so, city looks at you as part of its revenue generating yes. machine. That's one exactly biggest, what else are we? One of the biggest mistakes to, to use uh, to, to include in the budget, in the you know um, the amount of money you the city expects to make from law enforcement. What, what is that amount? It's millions and millions, millions and millions of dollars. This is this was discovered in Ferguson. From from yes. uh, you know, and but you see Ferguson as as uh, one of the officers said at the NBC special, uh, NYPD is Ferguson on steroids. This is where it started. Other smaller departments adapted it, and you know they. We'll talk about it. you because you were talking before. Broken windows policing starts in New York. Yes. Comp stat starts, starts in, in New, New York. York. All these sorts of things. Yes, about twenty years ago, and what happens is crime plummets. So it's seen as is something that's revolutionary and and very effective. In, in, in dropping crime, so other departments come here to, to learn it and they bring it back. You understand what comes that is. But how is how is New York Ferguson on steroids? Give me a, you understand what comps that is. I, I do. You want to explain to the folks what yeah, it is? Com, yeah, comps that you understand. You want to take yeah, comps that basically it's um it's amazing to me that this was something that was a breakthrough. But prior, okay, comps that is basically using data to try to prevent the next crime from happening and, and, and have an idea of where okay, okay, the crime okay. is. Com Comstat is basically, they, they, keep a num they keep numbers of all the rapes, robberies, burglaries, murders, all the crime. They, and it, they should do that. They should do yes. that. But what they're talking about, we're keeping crime down. You never can say, wow, when somebody's going to shoot somebody or when somebody's going to stab somebody. You can't just predict that. So they, they keep talking about bringing the crime down, but the crime's never down. They just change it. And I can give you an example of that. I had, I had a job... Uh, Actually, a couple of months ago, and basically, it was a building like this. The gentleman, the gentleman came into the building. He jimmied the lock with a screwdriver. He break, basically breaks the building. He goes into the building, and he leaves with a bicycle. What we lock him up for? <laughs> for? For burglary. Right. It's burglary, but they would change that to, like, criminal possession of stolen property. So we still have the crimes, but the numbers are, are changed. It's different. Right, right. You see? Right. So right. that's, that's basically what they're doing. So they they reclassify them the to make it seem like the numbers are down, but the crime the crime's not down. But Comstat is a good thing, but it forces it forces officers to like go out and get these numbers because so, when precinct commanders want to get promoted, they use those numbers in Comstat. Wow, we made this go down, we made that go down. So it's all about them getting promoted. And basically the pressure is on us when those numbers are not there. So the pressure basically rolls down to the police officers who's making these arrests. So what Comstat did 
it, it made it held commanders accountable for the crime in their precincts. Right. Prior to Comstat, it was just seen as crime is going to happen. So that burglary, prior to Comstat, a burglary is a burglary, detectives or whoever tries to work on it. Now with Comstat, you know, come Thursday, you the commander, what did you do about the? What are you doing, or what did you do about the burglary that happened? So two things: you either never you you don't want to you don't want the burglary because that way you won't be questioned about it. That's why you're reclassified. And this is where I think it's, it's most detrimental. What's accepted as, as an answer from a commander as to what they did about the burglary, if you simply increase all type of enforcement within the vicinity of that burglary, they'll leave you alone about the burglary. So say someone was or there was a burglary in this building, if within the two block radius, people get arrested or summonses go off for spitting, it doesn't matter what it Anything, is. Anything, whatever it Anything. is. So crime? Wait, it's seen as the commander did something about the burglary, even if you don't catch the burglar. So you guys, your lawsuit is about quotas. Uh, explain to us what quotas are, and does that essentially mean you are being told, go arrest a bunch of young black men? Yes, we are. So one of the things that's mentioned in the complaint is the fact that they use euphemisms. Only very, in this day and age, you know, 21st century, very few commanders and supervisors are foolish enough to say, go arrest young black men. But they'll say, go out there and address your conditions. Make sure you're stopping the right people. <laughs> Which means, go, go stop black, black kids. Men. Exactly. I'll give you an example. A friend of mine from the academy, he, he's a white guy. He, right now, there was, there's a heroin epidemic destroying Staten Island. I, I'm really... It's shocking that there's not more media coverage of it. It's so bad that every uniformed police officer has to have an epinephrine pen. In case someone overdoses, you know, you stick it in their leg and they, you resurrect them in a sense. Um, every single uniformed officer in Staten Island has to have one. And at least once a month, someone is brought back to life from an overdose on heroin. That's how bad heroin is tearing up Staten Island right now. But it's a health crisis. You know, when it was crack in Harlem, you know, crime crisis. It was the, it was the war on drugs. Yeah, I mean it's you know you get it. Yeah. yeah. So, a friend of mine locks up a white kid. A seventeen-year-old white kid had a book bag full of heroin. Something that's destroying the island. His sergeant takes him to the back and yells at him and says, "You not you gotta you have to get the arrest in the zone." What does that mean? There's a geographical area that they want to focus enforcement on. I don't think I have to tell you where the zone is. Right. That's where Eric Garner lives. Right. So the following week, he locks up a black kid to jump in the turnstile. Good job. Seven days before, he gets a book bag full of heroin that's destroying Staten Island, and he gets, you know. So why would the, why would the supervisor not like the arrest of, you know, this arrest Because of it's not in the zone. But you know what it really is. What is it really? It's a white kid. We're not here to arrest white kids and ruin their futures. And the, and the supervisor would tell you that? No, they'll say, you know, you didn't get the arrest in the zone. Well, I was, I was personally told to, by a lieutenant or sergeant, and um, to, to stop and summons people walking across the street with their pants hanging down, underwear sticking out. And then I went back. That's not a crime. Well, my commander, he was foolish, and he, he actually... If you arrested or summoned the white person, you had to talk to him. And he spoke to you about stopping the right people. Well, what would you say to somebody who's, you know, saying like, well, you know, it's black and brown people committing most of the crimes, so of course the cops should be focused on that. That's something called reasonable racism or rational discrimination. It's wrong. It's wrong because 
no matter what, it's, it's still less than 1% of the, of the demographic. You know, so, so to over-police the entire demographic because of what less than 1% does, is, it's foolish. Right. It's wrong, it's a ratio that, that there's no support for whatsoever. Because every demographic is always less than 1%. Right. So we don't over-police, you know. For instance, you take it historically, we didn't, we didn't you know, go crazy on the Italian community when the mafia was, was you know, dropping bodies left and right. We, that's not how we police East, you know, poor East New York back then or, or Flatbush. It, it's not it's not the solution. I mean, when a white person brought to my priest, it's like, like wow, like, you know, you're looking for the rest of the officer, like, oh, shit, like, like you know, what's up with that, you know? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, them. Everyone wants to know what happened. We was, we was white giving. White person gets arrested, you know. We, we, we was, hold on, let me run this to you. We was into the station in handcuffs. The officers are like. It stops everything. How did that happen? Yeah. Basically, yeah. When it's a black yeah. person, it's, you know, well, right back to. You know, I mean, you you have so many, but you know, you have so many black people that's 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 never been locked up, and it's like, I mean, whatever, you know, driver's license suspended. I mean, sometimes you don't even know, cause DMV, these, these, it's 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 like it's like life changing to go through the system. I mean, for someone who's never been locked up, it's it's just like a, it's like it's like sorry to say, but it's like a woman getting raped. It changes your life forever. It's dehumanizing, you know. No. And I mean, no, no, nobody cares. Nobody tries to like get you out of there and push up. People don't care. Once you get locked up, you're just like everybody else, you that, know. You know, of course, there are times when an arrest makes complete sense, but in the very essence of broken windows is focusing on low-level uh, infractions. So technically, the lower the infraction, the more room for discretion. Sure. So as long as you're addressing the, the situation, that's good police work. You know, if you're not, I'm not saying a cop should completely ignore it because it's minor. But it shouldn't. It doesn't absolutely have to end in handcuffs or a summons. Do we, let, me take, let me take a step back. Are you guys being told specific numbers that they want to see out of you? Like, yeah. I want you to oh, arrest oh, yes. 20 yes. people yes. today? Yeah, well, you see, I have eight years on a job. When I first started, with no problem, the numbers will come out with no problem. Now the numbers still exist, but supervisors are a lot more clever. They'll just keep pressuring you till you meet the number rather than tell you what so, you want. So you have, so what is it? You have a monthly goal? Monthly. Of month. how much? Uh, it, it varies per, by area. I started my career in transit. It was uh, two arrests, ten summonses, and ten stop and frisk. Per month? Every priest is different. And my, and my priest usually one arrest in like 15 to 20 summonses. Yeah. Either A's, B's, or C's. A month? A month. And some, that, that's not to say that some officers get two, three arrests. Some some. You know, but to stay on the radar, just to stay with everybody else, one is acceptable and 15 to 20 summonses 15 is 20. acceptable. And in other you places, know? it might be higher and a high crime it's, area might yes. be what, 10 or 20. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's always a quota. It, it's, it's, it's always has been. It always will be. Yeah. And it's always going to be in the future. It's just something, you know, it's like the police department, the way they see it, they just can't have their officers come to work not doing anything. You're getting a check, so you're going to bring us some numbers. That, that, that's the way it is. And that's the thing. That this is where we need a paradigm shift. The, de the definition of what it means to work as a police officer, this needs to be changed. Within the, within, the, within the department's uh, the department's culture because to them the, again the very definition of what it means to work is to write summonses and arrest everything else that we're supposed to be evaluated on they couldn't care less you can do none of this right yeah. and only arresting summons you're a great cop you know when when you as a police officer are standing on the corner doing nothing you're awake you're working. Yes. That's your job. Nothing will happen. Nobody's getting robbed. Nobody's getting shot. Nobody's you're getting there. stabbed. Exactly. Right? And I, you know, I mean, sometimes you make me feel nervous. Sometimes you make me feel comfortable. I got, I got, I got one for you. I was, I was on, um, on St. John's and Franklin for about forty-five minutes. The radio was dead, and um, it, 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 and um, 
My boss came over because now what they have is they have a chip in the car, so they have GPS in the car. Right. So they can literally figure out where you're at, right. if the car's off, if the car's on. So my boss drives over, my boss is like, well, what are you guys doing here so long? I say, you know, the radio's dead. I said, nothing's going on. So they told me to go to Washington and Atlantic because they just put up a new sign for illegal left turn. Right. So they wanted us to go over there and write some illegal left turns. This was like a Friday night. So I, 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 was, I was highly upset. I went and I spoke to my boss and I said, you know what, on Franklin, from Bergen to Eastern Parkway, we have more bars anywhere in this precinct. I said, if I was, my, if I was a supervisor on a Friday night, I would want some police presence on that strip. Right. And literally, about a month ago, we just had that kid shot in his eye and killed on, uh, on, on Lincoln Place. So, I mean, we, we have like a lot of rival gangs. on. We have Lincoln Fam and uh, PPG. We have like some rival gangs that's always at it. So, I mean, they would rather you be in that, in that dim, deserted, Bergen and Atlantic writing B summonses than where you should be, where you need it. This, this is what they think because you got, you're not bringing any numbers standing on the corner. You're doing your job, but you're not bringing any, num- any numbers. And, 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 and again, the, the point of bringing in numbers, is it inherently racist or is it ultimately economic? You guys could bring in money. This is the area where we could get the highest volume of arrests. Keep going there. I'll tell you this. The number one summons that we write annually is open container. The highest area to get open container is Park Slope and, you know, where white folks are. Right. You know, because, especially because it's not enforced, it's people do it without any thought. Right. So it's, it's, but you're not going to get away with targeting that area for long. It probably lasts a week or two. And you know, you somebody to, would tell you stop doing that? Absolutely. You know, you have to go for the proletariat, the people at the bottom, because they don't have the political clout to stop it. Right. You know, and historically, the people at the bottom it's been predetermined are going to be people of color right. in the United States. Right. So this is what makes it, and this is what makes it, you know, a, you know, a reflection of slave patrol. So in America, I mean, excuse me, in New York City, you know, we have different classes live very close to each other, right? But you, the way you see it, and when you are moving throughout your beat, different neighborhoods are getting entirely different qualities of policing. One hundred percent. It's not impartial. We are not policing impartially, objectively throughout the city. What? Let me ask you a question. What do you think would happen if they transferred him to Williamsburg in a city Jewish neighborhood and he started writing summonses the way they want him to write in this neighborhood? What would happen? How quick do you think he'd be transferred? I'll tell you this. A, a, perfect, a, perfect, uh, a perfect example is the 70th Precinct, where um, the west side of the precinct is Hasidic Jewish. Uh, anything west of Ocean Parkway. East of Ocean Parkway is Flatbush. It's predominantly West Indian Caribbean community. But there's still a quota. And because it, it, it covers a good chunk of Flatbush, a friend of mine, who he didn't only met his quota, he surpassed it. But he did it on Ocean Parkway. And he was told, write summonses on Ocean Parkway again, we're shipping you to the Bronx as a punishment. They want all the activity, which is the word they use for arresting summonses, they want the activity east of Ocean Parkway. They'll, they'll tell you exactly where to write it. They, they told me to write some summonses once, and I'll tell you like this, I, I went down to Vanderbilt, and I rode some, some white lady riding her bicycle in the street. I went, I went to the church, and I hit that whole church line with like triple park cars and double park cars, and when those preachers and those reverends come in the precinct, they'll tell you, hey, those, so they, they, tell you exact, they tell you exactly what they want. What they would say, right, to explain that is, we focus our resources where the crime is highest. Right, right, so right. So they'll say, it's not that we are saying go for the black community, but hey, go where the numbers this is are. Where, this is where, unfortunately, there were two shootings here, there were this, there were that. But, and I have to say, this, it, it, the crime in certain areas 
creates the perfect excuse for this, unfortunately, for, you know, for the department. But the reality is, you know, whether or not, even when crime goes down, the quota sticks. And this is how, you know, this is how they, I called them out on the nonsense. Because even when you get record-breaking uh, crime stats that are lower, you still, they still want more numbers. So technically, there should be a direct relationship where if crime is lower, the numbers would go down. Yeah, it'd be okay if the numbers lower, but it's never, it's never enough. It's never enough. Typically, when we are critical of the police, we think about like, well, there's a few bad apples. (laughs) No, go ahead, go ahead. And this, and this is why you know, on public, I said this is a systemic issue. Individual bigotry is not what we have to worry about. Right. You know, we have to worry about how systemically the racism is interwoven in the in the design of the policy. And broken windows that focuses on high crime, heavy enforcement in high crime areas. What it does is it re-victimizes the victim, the person who's already a victim from having to live where people, five people could get shot at 5 p.m. Yeah. While the sun is bright and flatbush, yeah. are now re-victimized because the broken windows response to that is hammer the whole four block radius. Yeah. So I'm already, you know, a young man in college trying to do my thing and, and better my life, yeah. where I have to live where I'm counting gunshots. But now here comes a 22-year-old cop fresh from the academy stopping me because, you know, for, for any, anything. We'll talk about your youth, right? Because you were very straight-laced yes. as a kid. Yeah. You avoided the gangs and the yeah. drugs, right? You were into the books. Yeah. And even still, the police are constantly stopping and, you. And, and how did that make you feel you about see, yourself? You know what? It, it, I just didn't get it. it. And this is what triggered, this what what motivated me to join more than anything because... I didn't get it. I said, wait, I'm doing everything right. How are they stopping me the same way they're stopping that guy? Um, and, I th- you know, at 17 years old, you, you fill in the blanks with what you know. I thought, yeah, that guy's racist. That's what it has to be. But then, you know, black cops started doing it. Dominicans, you know. Sure. And I said, wait, but he's, he's black. I, I don't think he's racist. Why is he treating me just like this? And I, and I didn't have that answer until I joined. Even even in the police academy, I couldn't find the, the answer. It was literally my first day on patrol. When we were paired up and put in groups with officers that had six months more experience than us, and the objective was to go get us our numbers. And, so, and I, real, real quick, I thought that was just okay, they want us to hurry up and arrest so we can see the arrest process and the paperwork, etc. But then they continued the next day and the next day, and that's all that was ever spoken about. We were even told to ignore our radios if someone calls for help. If it's not something that's going to lead to an arrest. So cardiac condition on the train. Remember, I started in transit. Let, let the district cops handle that. Because what they did is they kept rookie units together. They call it impact, Operation Impact. Let the district cops. So you can literally be right in the station where someone's having a heart attack and you're told by supervisors, don't, don't listen to the radio. Because you have to hide in a room and peek through a hole. And by leaving the room to go help the person who's in cardiac arrest, you're, you're, you're giving up your cover. And someone probably would jump the turnstile within that period. And so you don't they would get the rather arrest. you make arrests than stop crime. Absolutely, <laughs> by creating the perfect condition for the arrest to happen, by not by by creating by by you know pretending you're not there by hiding in a room. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door, thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids, and everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real, so I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know 
DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. You filed the suit about a year ago, right? August 31st, the complaint went in. Yeah, so you, how have you been uh, affected on the job since you came out? Because cops are not usually publicly critical. Well, and, and this is something I almost feel guilty for. Um, for whatever reason, I haven't suffered retaliation since. Um, but the, the other officers, because there's 12 of us, the others unfortunately have. And, and it, it breaks my heart. I was ready to suffer retaliation. I thought, I thought, inevitably, I thought that that's, that was the only option. You know, that I, I prepared myself, I prayed, I, I was ready, and it just it didn't come. Not, not yet, anyway, or not in the way that I expected. I, Have you had retaliation? Yeah. Those yeah, yeah. They, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the senior most officer on patrol. Out of the day tours, the 4 to 12, I got 22 years. I had more time than anybody on patrol in that precinct. I mean, to take your senior most officer, you know, this is something that's never, ever been done to white officers. When white officers get that much time on a job and they're about to retire, they give them like a nice cushiony job. They usually put them in a set, you know, try and give them overtime so when they retire, you know, it builds up their pension. But I mean, you know, the, and actually, actually the last couple of years, you know, you see a lot of a lot of minority officers getting into trouble because, I mean, years ago, you would never see like sergeants and lieutenants get into any trouble because years ago, most of the bosses was white. So now the last few years, you had like a lot of minorities like making rank and going up a little bit, not high, but they're going up a little bit. So now they're actually getting in trouble. Have other officers just, you know, cold shoulder, you know, elbow in the hallway, whatever would like. I, I, I hear like little stuff like, oh, shit. 
he's recording you, be careful. I mean, like like little little jokes, yeah. but I mean yeah. I mean, you know, those those officers it, it wouldn't bother me anyway, because I, I know who's true and who's not. So I mean I, I keep to myself anyway. It's not like I have buddies that I hang out with that's officers. So are most of the officers <clears throat> You know, like if you got them quietly, would they be like, "I support you"? No, I've had, I've, I've had many. I've gotten that more than anything. White and black, white and, and brown. I've, I have many. Officers, officers are supportive of Absolutely. your, crusade, but they're afraid to they say something wanna, because yeah, of the fear. Yeah, because they, they don't want to be seen talking to you because yeah. they know it's how the department is and the department of you know a lot of guys got good gigs. They got their day tours. They got their weekends off, and you know they don't want to stop that. They know, wow, you know, I live in Brooklyn. I pick up my kids in Brooklyn, so I don't want to get transferred to Staten Island. You know that. No, it's, it's tell them this is serious, man. This is what they do to you. No, I hear you. I hear you. I mean, you know, it's it's been. I'll even say it's been support um, right up to the rank of inspector. I've had because um, right after a few days after the article, there's an annual Black History Month celebration at One Police Plaza where they have a, a keynote speaker come in and give a give a nice speech. I go every year, and I was contemplating whether or not I should go. You know, this year because of the article, and um, it was the same exact day that Bratton. Um, you know, said my claims were bullshit. Um, no, that was the day after, actually. So I went, and you know, people recognized me immediately, and they were, they said, "Yo, man, you know, I I never met you, but that's good." To, you so know. most of your most of the cops are yes. supportive, very supportive, you. because they you know, like one one executive, you know, high ranking official basically said, "It's as if this thing took on a life of its own, where no one feels responsible for it, but we all know it's not right." And but. We, we feel there's nothing that can be done about it. And here you are, entry-level position in, in this organization, and you're outspoken, you know, got, my hat goes off to you. You know, most of the time on this show, I try to talk to people about, you know, how they're dealing with challenges yeah. in their life. And I want to come back to the policing issues, but, you know, just when, before you talk about prayer, because um, this is probably the greatest challenge of your life. Absolutely. Right? The most stressful Absolutely. period of your life. Absolutely. So... What are you doing? What have you added to be able to deal with this ongoing, seemingly unending, super stressful situation? Good question. Um, Well, one thing that's, um, it's, you know, I could have never imagined that this would be something that could help me, but I actually had a really tough childhood. And um, sometimes I just think about the fact that I made it through that type of of adversity. And I use that to to strengthen me. I also look back at uh, our ancestors, you know, we, we benefit from their sacrifice. Um, the fact that we can even become police officers as black men is because of their sacrifice. So I, look, I reflect back at, at our ancestors and say, you know, if they did it so we can do this, you know, then who am I to not continue to add yeah. to, to, to the quilt? I look at it as a, a patchwork quilt where every generation gets to sew its own piece. Yeah. And the objective is to continue to pass the quilt Till the quilt is big enough to insulate us all from the cold airs of oppression, you know. Saying that that's my view. It's every generation has its obligation. So this is just me putting putting the work in. Yeah. How have you felt and what have you thought about watching this policing crisis go on? Prior to the the era that went in the the national movement on police reform, you know, I, within a few weeks I said, oh wow, okay, now I understand why. I had those experiences back as a teenager, and now I understand why, although I'm out here to do so much better, people see that patch and, you know, I'm a sellout. They think they, they, think they know everything that I'm about just because I'm in this uniform. Until they actually speak to me, they're like, okay, I'm not gonna lie, you're different, but I still don't like cops. 
Um, Polanco, who's part of our, our, you know, one of the complaints, um, the plaintiffs in our lawsuit, he, you know, and I tell him this all the time, he's my hero because at the time I had maybe one or two years on the job and here he is in ABC7, you know, saying what it is, the quota, the stop and frisk, the pressure. And it was what made me know I wasn't losing my mind because I was like, wait, how is everyone going along, or going along with this? You know, even black cops. You know, I know it's one friend of mine. She's a woman with a black, a single mother with a black son. Honestly, she's one of the worst cops I've ever seen with what she does out there. And I'm like, you have a black son, and you could do this. What do you think? Like your son is 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 this could happen to your son? You know? What? Have you said that to her? Uh, I, I've tried, but one, it's a paramilitary organization. So it's one of those things where once you outrank someone, they're almost afraid to talk. But but once you're in the same rank, they'll they'll tell you anything. And they they, they almost because we're so used to taking orders from superiors, we, we don't even want to hear what our, our um you know colleagues on the same level have to say. So they start to feel uncomfortable. They're like, All right, Sarge, you know, as a jo- as a you know, condescending, like you're not my boss, like, you know, I, I work the you work the way you work, I work the way I work. You know, I wanna to get to a unit. That's another thing we should address. It makes no sense. You could you could come from John Jay College, the Harvard of criminal justice. You could have innovative ideas on on improving how to uh, investigate when it comes to being a detective. None of it matters if you don't first have the numbers. You must first go out there and arrest so many people to even be considered to be detective before they even look at you. How many people? Hundreds in a short period of time. You arrested hundreds of people to get to be a detective. No, I was undercover six years. You know, I was that's out another, out okay, that's, that's a whole other discussion, but yeah. black yeah. officers, because of our appearance, because of our ability to go into certain neighborhoods, that, that's, that's the crazy one too. thing we can go to narcotics. The most dangerous work, narcotics but when you when you put in your, But when you put it in your paper for narcotics, being a minority, they push you towards being an undercover. Undercover, not investigators. Because not, of, you know, the no investigators, yeah, yeah, know, yeah because the investigators TV. are like the arrest team, and the undercovers actually buy drugs, so I mean... I mean, even now they push the minorities because I mean, my, I work, I work because the job is an undercover to work in this certain amount of area for X amount of time without being blown up, basically. So I mean, I worked with a with a with a white officer who's mad court working for a while, but every time we would make a buy, the the guys on the set would be like, every time that motherfucker leaves, the police bust us. So I mean, it was dangerous for him to work in that area, folks. So he just had to move from precinct to precinct to precinct to precinct, you know. So they pushed the minorities to be undercovers, and the undercovers make so much less money than the investigators, you know. And I mean, there was an actual newspaper article at one time because we had like a, a unwritten contract that we would be undercovers for three years, and they was holding the undercovers like five, six years before they would flip you to the undercover. So after Jane James, the two officers got killed in Staten Island, immediately the city flipped from undercover to investigator, 192 officers at that one time. So at that time, they didn't have any office, any undercovers to work the five boroughs. Okay. So you had field teams just going out, just locking up anybody, you know? One of the things we've talked about in the last year, two years or so, this Ferguson effect, this idea that uh, Black Lives Matter has made a, created an environment where police officers are saying, I don't want to over-engage, I won't do things that I don't have to do almost a sort of stand down. This is an idea that's come out. And we've seen the sociologists, uh, you know, the criminologists say, no, this is not happening. And I've talked to officers who are like, no, I'm still doing my job. I am nervous about getting caught out there, the mayor leaving me out to drive, but I'm still doing my job. How about you? What do you see and how are you feeling? Is the Ferguson effect making you say, uh, I don't want to be the next okay, one. Okay, let me let me go first. I th- I think that's up to indiv- up to individual cops. I mean, I know I know 
how I stand as, as being a police officer. I know I know my limits as a police officer. I'm not like a little guy, you know, but I'm, I'm very, you know, first of all, pol police presence has a lot to do with your policing. You know, you know, there's a, there's a lot of fat officers, period, as we see that. So, I mean, just, he, he's, he's, he's a, a decent looking guy. I'm, I'm not saying, I'm strong, okay? Yeah. So, I mean, also the way you present yourself in a uniform has a lot to do with the way you're gonna, the way your job is gonna go. So, I mean, my, my uniform's always squared away. You know, I, I respect, I, even, even off, off work. You know, there's a certain respect I have for myself, and I, I have that same respect in uniform. So, I might be able to go to a job and totally de-elevate it just by the way I look. Somebody else that's smaller, maybe a little bit out of shape, but there, there's no type of physical like whatever to be a police. Once they leave the academy, they, a lot of these cops lose it. So, I mean, every every cop is different. You know, I I think every cop ought to be held accountable for his actions. Period. When when somebody runs away from you, does that piss you off? To be honest, not too many people have ran away from me, and with the experience that I have, I can tell when somebody's gonna run away. Like, like this is something that, that you really can't teach. A lot of things as far as policing, it comes in time, and a lot of officers, a lot of these new officers, they'll never learn it. I mean, one officer in another district told me when people run away, he gets that's, really you know upset, what? and that's a lot when of, sometimes people are. But a lot of guys, a lot of guys, do, I've, I've seen it, a lot of officers do get overly aggressive because they had to chase this guy. Now they figure, wow, you had to chase me. Now I'm going to lump you up after I caught you. But that's 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 totally wrong, 100 percent wrong. Well, you know, that's part of your job. Right? You signed you signed the line to do that. That's that's part of your job. If you got to run up five flights of stairs, you got to chase him two blocks. That's your job. Once you get the cuffs on him, it's over. That's what, it. What but a lot of cops don't see it like so that. So what about the Ferguson effect? Is that, is well, that yeah, really um, happening? So, so um, you know, the idea that because um, policing, policing is under heavy scrutiny, officers have decided they're just not going to engage, it's not true. You know, as much as... It's not happening. It's not happening. It's not happening. It, it's not true because... No, no way. I don't, I don't think it's true either. A perfect example is uh, after the two officers were unfortunately killed in Bed-Stuy, you know, um, there was a slowdown. I see it as the best time to be a person of color in the five boroughs because this is where, you know, there was still arrests being made, robberies, etc. I think there was even a shooting, something in a Chinese restaurant. Cops were still working, but they were focusing on serious crime because mm. as a cop, you just can't. If something serious has happened, most 99% of cops can you can't turn blind. Yeah, you got okay. you, know, you, you know. You got to engage. You got to do your job. Yeah. But what's what stopped? was the broken windows nonsense. Mm. That's what stopped for those two weeks. And crime didn't go up, shootings didn't go up. It, to me, I don't think enough people paid attention to those two weeks, almost three weeks. Very important time that shows you that broken windows is not responsible for keeping things under order. It's not. And look at Stompers, for instance. And at the time, I used to be on Facebook, very, very political, making strong comments, debating people I've never met from all over the law enforcement world. When uh, Judge Scheinman had a ruling on stop and frisk, uh, you know, my uh, conservative colleagues, oh, watch them when they give the city to liberals, watch they eat, they're going to eat each other all over Bedside and Harlem. I said, watch, no, you watch that, it's not going to, you'll see the, the, the truth, 700,000 stop is ridiculous. Right. You understand? And they said, all right, Raymond, we'll see. A year later, even surpassed my expectations. Not only did it not go up, it actually, crime dropped 37%. Homicide dropped 37% between 2011 and 2013. But we went from 700 stopping, 700,000 mm -hmm. to less than 50,000. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. That's 
amazing. Was stop and frisk a valuable tool for you as stop, an officer? Stop and frisk, right? <laughs> to legally conduct a stop and frisk, you need what's called reasonable suspicion. But that can be anything. No, a furtive no. movement, which means whatever you want it to be, is that. Well, here's the thing. Um, with genuine, genuine reasonable suspicion, stop and frisk to me is common sense police work. But that's not what was happening. We would, we would talk, like for instance, friends that worked in East New York, 75 Precinct, their number was 20. Don't come in with 19 for the month. Nine, you, we want 20 stop and frisks every month. Yeah, and you cannot, you, know what? you cannot create reasonable suspicion. It's like a bird dropping. It occurs, it happens. That's One of the things that some people may not realize that, that the, the victimization or whatever that happens when the cop stops and frisks you is one part of the problem. But after that, right, you write a report based on who that person is, where they were, right? Was it a 120? 250. You know what, those... Right, so then they are in a system. The even though they, right, even though they've done nothing yes, wrong. And civil liberty sued for this. You know what, those... Right, and so but that, so you're putting a tag almost on these exactly. people, right? Exactly. And, and that... Civil liberties sued, and they partially won where the database was no longer allowed to be electronic, but they can keep the physical cards. But they weren't allowed to have an electronic database of the cards, but... Uh, from what I see. You know what, to be honest with you, a great number of those stop questions at first was all bullshit because there was a point where we didn't even need a person's ID to do a stop question at first. So basically, if you we, we had what's called spike overtime. And if you didn't bring in certain numbers, they would eliminate you from spike. So basically, if you don't bring in the summons or an arrest or a 250, they wouldn't give you it the next week or the next couple of days. So only those, those cops that was, that was productive would get that overtime. In transit, we were told... If someone is standing at the turnstiles, stop and frisk them. And we're like, what? what? Like, if someone asks you for a ride, that's a two fifty. So officers went out there, and yo, you also, oh yeah, I gotta get back. Uh, I came to Brooklyn to see my mom. I gotta get back to Harlem. I don't have coffee. You have ID, and then they would, they would just do, they would fill out the card with the ID. Right? <laughs> this happened without the person knowing that they, they didn't were. know. This happened so often that to this day. People will come up to you in transit with their ID already out. Officer, I need a ride to 125th Street. Can you let me on? Any officer that became a cop after 2013 has no idea why the ID is out because this is when the pressure stopped for, for stop and frisk. But uh, officers did this so often, right, that, again, people came out with the IDs already out. But there's a part in the 250 card, the stop and frisk form, where it says, was the person frisked? We, we would check no. It got to headquarters. They said, how come so many people are being stopped, yet not being frisked? So now, people that simply were down on their luck and needed a ride were getting frisked. And sometimes even for I mean, search. Some folks would say that the frisk part is for your protection as an officer. Is that bullshit? That, that depends on a lot that, of circumstances. That if you have reasonable, genuine reasonable suspicion. If it's genuine reasonable suspicion if there was just a shooting and the person's wearing an orange shirt and purple jeans and someone comes around the corner with orange shirts and purple jeans i have reasonable suspicion sure i'm gonna stop you because it was a shooting you know while i'm talking to you you have my guard could be down i could look away and bam that's the end of my life it, it'll make sense for me to quickly frisk you to see but, in, in, but if that's it's, not the normal situation no and, and it's funny because those who were supportive of the old way of stopping frisk they would always use that one of the best examples of reasonable suspicion and if you follow this the the, the floyd versus nyc case mm -hmm. the number one reason checked off on the card was furtive movement mm -hmm. they pulled i believe 19 cops who wrote the most stop and frisk and had them one by one testify 
what does furtive mean? Not one could give the definition of the number one thing that you're checking. They didn't know the definition of the word Correct. itself. Exactly. <laughs> Yet it's the number one thing that, not only that they used... This is the number one thing that cops use because it was the most ambiguous. Right. You know. Right. Furtive. What's a furtive? It could mean anything. Exactly. And the word for furtive is. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Secret. Right. What is a secret move? But I mean, anything that a black person does in the wrong area is... I, you, you made me think about, um, I forget his name, who's the Asian brother who, who was in the projects? The Staircase. Peter oh, that, that's Peter Liang. Peter Liang, right? <laughs> and just got convicted, right? He was scared, right? Yeah. And, and when we have officers who are in black neighborhoods, and they are scared for their lives, we cannot get effective policing. Exactly. So, let's talk once again about sex, underwear, because your boys deserve better. Deserve underwear that feels good, that provides support, that is worn throughout Wakanda. That's what sex underwear is all about. The only men's underwear actually designed with the male anatomy in mind. You know, they started off with the idea, why can't men's underwear be awesome? And they have this ballpark pouch thing that holds you together nice and tight. And you know what I'm saying? And it keeps you together and it makes every day nice with all that super soft moisture wicking breathable fabric stuff they sent me a bunch of pairs a couple months ago i haven't worn anything else i mean i have changed my underwear but i have only worn Saks underwear since i was introduced to the product because it's really good underwear looks cool feels good i feel good all day wearing it so look Saks is going to give you a great deal Five dollars off plus free shipping on your first purchase. Use the promo code Torre at checkout. So, order some sacks now at saxxunderwear.com. That's saxx with two X's. Use the promo code Torre at checkout and check them out because they've been a longtime supporter of the show. So, I really appreciate it. Sacks underwear. Thank you. It seems to me that the union is. 
part of the problem in that they tend to, no matter how wild an officer's behavior, you can count on the union chief, and not just in New York, wherever, you can count on the union chief. It depends, it depends, the officer. Pat Lynch himself has spoken out against quotas publicly. He has. The head of the union yes, in New York. Yes, and I give him credit for that. So for 12 officers within the union who all pay union dues to take this type of initiative, Where's I've yet to see him behind the podium supporting us. Yeah, the union is not supporting no. you. Shouldn't they be supporting Absolutely. you? You guys are officers. Absolutely. And, are I pay, and I pay my dues. Yeah. Not to mention, we're not... In, this isn't controversial. This is something that's unlawful that's being done. And he personally agrees with it. Yes. I, I've, there's, you can, there's, Why is he not standing with you? Look at look at who we are. He's, he's, you know what? you you got to understand. Even even if, if he was to do something or I was to do something, we're giving, we're giving lawyers... Who work for the police department? So they're only going to fight for you a certain a certain amount. You know what I'm saying? They're not going to go all out as if you was to hire a, a, a lawyer outside the police department. I mean, part of what you guys have done is risk your career. Absolutely, it's done. It's done. It, what do you mean? It's I, done? I'm not going to say that. I'm saying my, I, I know my career is done. I mean, I'm, I'm not going nowhere. You're not. You're, I mean, you were Officer Raymond. You were just promoted. Well, I'm, I'm, I got the word that I will be promoted. I got the word yesterday that I will be that. The hearing that I went to, the board, yeah. uh, you know, I, I got the endorsement for promotion. So the next time a class goes in to be promoted, I'll, I'll, I'll go. So, but at the same time, you say your career is over. I, I, I'm not saying that. You're I, not I saying that. I don't see it that way. But you are risking your career. I, I am. In doing this. Yes. And so the question is what? Because this is big. Like, like Derek said, this is not, it, you know. It's bigger I, than I'm, you. Yeah. I'm not worried about myself. You know, if, listen, like. If, if if this is what I have to go to through, so your children can be treated with respect, I, I, to me it's it's millions of lives will be affected by this. If I have my career has to come to a halt, so millions of people can be properly res- respected and policed the the way it should be, then to me that's that's not that's nothing. It's completely worth it. I mean, you know, that sort of principled stand is stuff that people talk about hypothetically. No, I would do it. that, but you're actually Absolutely. doing 100%. it. One hundred percent. I had the opportunity before things went tanked to play the game and get promoted on time and, and just go on with my career. I had the opportunity to do that. I didn't, you know, because I, I stood by morality. I stood by principle, and I stood by the law. That that's what isn't spoken enough about enough that technically I stood by the law because what they're doing is unlawful you know so the thing is that they're ignoring that law but what is it in you that allows you to say I'm gonna put my personal desires my per- my dreams aside and fight for this bigger thing that is potentially I, I, hurtful I, I, to me I, I advocate you know especially for black folks collectivism over individualism we have to think as a group we have to move as a group we have to do things with the group in mind. If we continue to worry about, because when you do things with the group in mind and you're part of the group, you're going to benefit. When you do things for yourself, yeah, you might benefit, but it, it won't reflect. And, and it's much, you know, when we carry the burden together, all of us don't, it's not as heavy. You know what I'm saying? We but all the, do our part. But the burden is quite heavy. It is. So, but the more people that have their hands on that weight, the, 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 the less that we all feel the impact of it. You know what I'm So, and go again, going back to the ancestors, they, you know, to see what they went through, this is nothing. I'll go through this ten times again. You know, I'm not. You know, they got lynched. They, 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 they went through so much more. 
You know, the fire department that they pay taxes to put out their fires or open up hoses, open it up uh, high pressure hoses on them. And, you know, everybody in blue and black is dealing with this quota situation, right? Yeah. And, he, yeah, white houses, this is your big Yes, yeah, I mean, everybody's dealing with it. But I mean, like, you know, Orlando, Vegas, uh, Dallas, I, don't, I don't know about the agencies. Okay. okay, this is something, right? For some reason, police departments, when it's time for them to choose a new chief, a new person to run it, they like to choose from the ranks of, of executives in the New York City Police Department. So after you've been con uh, conditioned to see th things through the, the, the lens of broken windows and cops that, when you go to Miami, Chief uh, Timoney, he becomes the commissioner or, or chief or whatever they call it, the, head, the top cop in Miami, he brings cops that there. Friends of mine who are cops in Miami, they said when he, once he came, we had quotas. But they're not going to go as far as to try to destroy your career for not meeting it. They'll just continue to pressure you. They're not going to... Imagine your son or daughter was graduating from high school and you're a cop and you have to work that day. We took, if you want to request leave, imagine every time you request leave, they say, what are you looking like for the month? Which, which is police jargon for, did you meet the quota? The next time, if you know you need a day off, you're going to make sure you've already met the quota before you even ask. So now, it's three weeks into the month. You know the first week of June is the, your daughter's graduation. It's three weeks into the month and nothing really happened. You're going to create something. You're going to find something. You're going to find You're going to go hunting for something. You're going to find you're gonna something. You're going to hunt. You're going to find any technicality, you know, to meet that quota. So you can go to your daughter's graduation. You hear, you hear guys on the radio pulling over car, car stop, car stop, car stop. The Brooklyn DA basically refused to prosecute less than 25 grams of weed. And Bratton was living. That was the majority he, of the college was weed. This, yeah, that's the number one arrest weed. we have since the war on drugs. For over 30 years, the number one arrest by far is unlawful possession. In the end, the smallest it, portion of a pinch. A, a, a nickel bag type of matter. A pinch. Yeah, a pinch. Resident right? anything. And... What's number two? Just out of curiosity. Arrest, yeah. theft of service, transit. Okay. It sure. actually last year became number one just because of because how we now right. prosecute weed. This started with the Brooklyn DA, Ken Thompson. He refused to prosecute less than 25 grams. Bratton said this has been the, the backbone of broken windows. He was livid. He, he didn't agree. Seven months later, de Blasio makes it a citywide initiative, right? And now all of a sudden the department is standing by and is you know, uh, he calls it the peace dividend, where we're going to have a million less contacts. He's taking credit for something that he denounced. Yeah, right. Makes no sense. But well, he's trying to stay on, on good yeah. with the mayor. Well, yeah, and also taking credit for something that he denounced. Because when my article came out and we did the press conference um, on March 1st, the, the feedback from the department, the answer was, quotas, you know, anyone think, who thinks there are still quotas, look at our numbers. They're much lower. They're much lower because when we prosecute weed, they're much lower because the stop and frisk. And in your opinion, as a man on the street, not having to deal with small amounts of marijuana, is that does that make you a more effective police officer? Yes, because now you're there. Now you're there to, to, to you're visible, which is an automatic deterrent for many things. And for the things that it doesn't deter, you're there to, to make the arrest. You're there to, to you're there. And you're able to focus on what more effective behavior rather than stopping somebody for having residue or a bag yes, or whatever absolutely absolutely because let's be serious you know the department of health shows that you know everyone smokes weed it's across Huge. ethnicities and demographics everyone smokes weed so you know but again another thing 80 percent of those arrested for weed are, are you know black and brown folks 
well, the Department of Health shows it's either the same or a little bit more in white communities. Right. We, you know? right. we use drugs at the same rate. I mean, well, I always thought if you wanted to make a bunch of drug arrests, you could just storm any college campus, it, right? You could get any drug on any, any college campus, no. and it never happens. It's where predominantly black and you know, poor minority areas. Again, these are the areas that lack the political clout to do anything about it. But back, back to what you were saying, where, okay, this isn't completely nationwide. It's where, one, wherever they hire people who were executives in the police department under comps, you know, during the Comstat Broken Windows era, starting in 94 and beyond, they bring this back to their respective departments that, they become in, that they're in charge of. So that's one issue. And others who realize the revenue that can be generated from issuing so many summonses and the revenue, because the war on drugs basically earmarked a, a billions of dollars from the federal government uh, for police departments to, to enforce right. drug drug uh, drug violations right. you know so the more drug arrests you got the more funds you qualified for that was that's another issue you know um, but now that we have bipartisan agreement that wow. we need to change these uh, yes but nothing is really happening outside of the decriminalization yeah. of marijuana yeah. rising here well, and there, they're, they're, there they're waiting but, for I the mean, executive to leave I office. mean a lot of us feel like the war on drugs is putting you guys in certain positions. We're going to attack Brownsville or Bed-Stuy or what have you. And if we did not have the war on drugs, then you would be deployed differently. Do you agree with that? 100%, yeah. You know, it, yeah, absolutely. And the war on drugs allows you to make a volume of arrests that don't actually have an impact on what happens on the street. They don't, they don't have an impact might, on the street, but, but it has might, an impact on num on the number system. It, it, on it, the it, everything goes back to those numbers. But I mean, you might nobody, spend. It's like no, nobody cares about the actual what the arrest is for. They they just want numbers. No, nobody cares. Yeah, one they, thing, they don't, they're they don't not, care. They're it's not asking, about numbers. Are you making a difference? They're no. saying what no, numbers? What they're the saying is, uh, you know, we want. We want enforcement for the most violent criminals, etc. But there's no system to check the quality of the arrests whatsoever. It's really what the number tallies up. There's the no system to check to the quality, check the quality no. of the Nobody's talking about quality arrests. No. They're just talking about quantity. That's it. Is there any, with the noise that you've made, is there any... Changes? Yeah. Yes, they have been. With transit specifically, um, there's something called the transit recidivism policy where... Any arrest, if you've ever been arrested in the transit system, you from that point on, you don't qualify for a summons anymore. Anything you do from that point, arrest. it's an arrest. And I called this out. Um, they changed that. I called it out on March 1st, March 3rd. A memo came down, they changed it. Um, what else? So now you could get multiple summonses yes. in the... Yes, and it's, yeah. Um, officers hiding in the rooms. This is how the arrest happened. That so you're talking about officers hide... In the bathroom, they can see the so they see who jumps over That's the turnstile. But you're not actually providing any safety because nope. you are hidden. Not to mention, if someone needs a cop, they you know where to be found. Right, you're in the room, out of sight from them, and they're paying tax dollars for you to be there. To be hiding in a room for oh, a fair jumper. Let me tell you. Let me tell you. So, there was an incident two years ago in a room, and uh, when the department investigated the incident with, amongst cops. They kept asking, "Why? What's up with these rooms?" Because some, some, uh, sometimes they don't know this is what officers do. So then the memo came down: no more rooms. In seven days, the arrest, the amount of arrests, plummeted over eighty-five percent. This and, and this is how lucrative the rooms were to the numbers. 
And they actually asked officers, what's going on? You guys shut down on us? I'm like, no, we're not in the rooms. Now we're out there actually policing. Right. You learn that you're not going to arrest as many people. I'm glad you used the word lucrative because yeah. that's the biggest uh, turn for me out of this conversation. I mean, I knew that they were doing that in Ferguson, right? And like hitting him with all kinds of tickets. This is where it started. They learned that here. I mean, explain explain it to me again, because I want myself and all people to... had broken windows, right? Coincided with plummeting crime. And I'm not going to say it wasn't effective or part of the reason, but it wasn't the sole reason. But this is how... Bratton, because this is his legacy. This is how he Bill likes Bratton, to... Bill Bratton, the chief. Yes, he, this is... Broken Windows and Compton is his legacy. So he likes to... He likes to brag about it as if it is the sole reason crime plummeted in New York changed face. So, but the reality is when Comstat started, crime, crime did plummet to record lows and continued to do so. Um, it actually started even before Comstat. You know, two years before Comstat under Mayor Dinkins, crime already started. You know, crime, you usually measure specifically by homicide. Homicides. You can't fudge those numbers. Well, then, when you start to see a drop in, like, the early, mid-90s, right? Yes, like, with yes. the waning of the crack epidemic. That's And to me, as someone from the hood, I think that's the number one reason. Okay, let's talk about this, because I thought that the waning of crack was that's the biggest the number reason. One. As someone who's boots on the ground, that is the number one reason crime is I, I crime read some great long study about why we had this massive national drop in crime. Because it wasn't just New York, no. right? All over the country, early to mid-90s, massive drop in homicides. Yeah. And they said, no, it's not about the drop in crack. It's not about this. It's not about that. It's about cops. Death. It's not about the number of cops that because, exploded because in the 90s. Even, because death. even in the departments that in cities that can't afford to hire 1,300 cops every six months that didn't adapt the system of cops, that crime, they also benefited from that drop in crime. They also, you know, had that drop in crime. And, and every time this is thrown at Bratton, he has no answer. Actually, last year, on the record, I could forward you the article, he admits that there is no correlation between broken windows and a drop in crime, but this is what my gut tells me, is what he says. You know, something that's affecting millions of people, he's relying on something completely anecdotal. It, that's, which is crazy. Even you know? though he's the computer guy. He, he, unbelievable, you know, because he bought that type of management system to policing, and, you know, he should know better. Um, he, he addressed a, a church last year, right, during Black History Month, a black church, and said some of the worst, uh, worst acts in, in the history of this nation when it comes to race would not have been possible without police departments. Like, he gets it, you know, for... For, for him to know that much, you would think he would police better. He, he would come up with better policies. That, that event that I went to in February, the Black History Month celebration, he opened up uh, and spoke. And his speech was so uncanny because he said, you know, blacks have gone through, uh, you know, great strives in this nation and many have joined police departments, but they need to understand joining police department is not enough. They have to work hard and rise through the ranks and change and be the change they want to see. And it's like, you're telling me to do what I'm doing. You, you, it's as if you're telling me, good job, Raymond. Right. Keep keep it up. Keep it. But you stopped my promotion two months ago. And the, the journalist who wrote the Times piece was there and we both looked at each other in awe. Like we 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 could tell we were thinking the same thing. And another officer who I didn't even know was there because it, it was probably two thousand people in the in that auditorium. He texted me the quotes and said, "Raymond, this is like he was talking to you." I said, "I was there. I know." I know. Like what? So 
it almost puzzles me how does if you can if you can admit or acknowledge rather that slave patrol and, and policing has never been right when it comes to dealing with black folks and if you can sit there and say be the change you want to see it's his favorite quote it's actually mine also gandhi you have the same favorite quote you know, but we're on two different sides <laughs> of this thing. It's amazing. It's unbelievable. What is your opinion on body cameras and their potential to change policing? <laughs> to, I, I don't know about the body cameras. I, I, I think once once that police officer has to second guess himself and that extra seconds, he has to think like, wow, I'm doing this wrong. I'm doing that wrong. I'm, you know, his life is in jeopardy. I'm not with him. I think I think you don't like it because it will slow down your decision making process. I, I think exactly. I think exactly. You know. What do you think? The, the, the bottom line is we're, we're all on camera. This day and age, no matter what lobby true. you walk into, or no matter what street you walk down, you're all on camera. It's true. I mean, so so how does the police department decide like who gets a camera, who <clears throat> don't get a camera? Like, why? Why, why actually? The only reason I'd be for it is. Uh, you know how difficult it's going to be for the department to explain all these nonsense stops? Once you see it on camera, what people are being stopped for? It, it, once you see it, it it's bad. Um, police Reform Organi Organizing Project, PROP, they, went, they did an amazing uh, study where they went out to Park Slope and issued mock summonses. You know, they wrote, they, you know, they, they took a summons, they made copies, and they stopped people as if they had authority to do so um, and gave them summonses. The things that people get summonses for all over the And life. people who don't live in Brooklyn may not know Park Slope, very white area. Exactly, right? And the people were outraged. They could not believe what they were being stopped for. And the people were saying, do you, do you know in Brownsville, this is, you know, this many people are stopped. <laughs> do you know in Flatbush, this many, do you know in Bedside, Mount Haven, in Harlem, in Southside Jamaica, this, and they're like, really? Oh my, like, it's as if people don't know that this is what we go through in certain I mean, areas. You know, guys, guys are getting stopped for... Guys are getting... Hold on one second. Guys are getting stopped for spitting. No, no, no. Really. It, sound, it sounds crazy, doesn't it? But spitting, it, it happens all the time. Well, did the Eric Garner situation change the department at all? Whenever something goes wrong in the department, in the department they, they, they retrained the whole department. Yeah, but, it was called but, 20K smart policing and it, it, it was a three-day training very expensive because all of it was done on overtime on our days off it cost a lot of money to give this training but here's the thing the training itself it, the material itself was pretty good but uh i'm having a lieutenant looking because when that when and the pr entire precinct goes entire shift so everyone who works the morning shift goes the lieutenants the sergeants everyone and I, i'll never forget the i worked the the 4 to 12 shift, the afternoon, the evening shift. And the people that worked the morning shift, they went first, and they would text me, Raven, this is like basically telling cops to be like you. Right. So I couldn't wait to go. So when I went, the entire time, people were just looking up. Because I sat in the back, they were just looking up, like, oh, shit, like, this, this is what you, this is what, like, these supervisors know damn well that this is what you say. When they ask you about the quota, you stand tall, and you tell them this is what they should be doing. And here they are being trained being paid on overtime for this training. So everyone, it was like a, 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 the elephant in the room, like, wow, like Raymond is, this training vindicates Raymond. But then when I got back to the precinct, the lieutenant pulled me aside and said, Raymond, I know we just went through this training, but don't think you're bringing that shit back here. Yeah, I was like, wow, a black woman, by the way. I applaud the courage of those two men 
for standing up for their principles, even when that came with significant sacrifices and personal peril. They are American heroes fighting to make policing more equitable and more just. We need more cops standing up and saying, hey, I love the force, but we can do better. I don't want to hear anything else about what citizens can do to mollify the police and how we can make them feel better. We need officers to police other officers and the policing system itself. Thanks to officers Raymond and Waller for their time. And thanks to you for listening. I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Please stop by and say hi. And if you like the show, subscribe, rate, and review. It helps. And talk about it on your socials. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Chris Basil with help from Shelby Royston, William Jolly, Candy Nicole, and Caden 13 Studios, as well as photographs from Chuck Marcus. We're here to give you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and I hope this show can help you do that. We'll be back next Wednesday with more knowledge from amazing folks because the man can't shut us down. Next week, Andre Leon Talley.